Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Keep up with the twists, turns, and acceleration in the mobility industry between episodes with SAE's incredible SAE Smart Brief. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe and receive the latest industry articles, updates, news, and announcements straight to your inbox. On today's episode, I sat down with Andreas Wendell, Vice President of Engineering at Kodak Robotics to discuss the range of confidence across cameras, radar, and LIDAR, the many factors that affect self-driving long-haul trucking on highways, and how Kodiak has maintained a 100% on-time delivery record for commercial customers. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Andreas. Thanks for having me, Grayson. It's a pleasure talking to you today. I'm super excited to have this conversation because it's a term that's very popular now. You're one of the OGs. You started on the Google self-driving car project prior to going to Kodiak. What was that experience like working on the Google self-driving car project? Yeah, it was a great experience. I joined the Google self-driving car project right after finishing my PhD and being a visiting researcher at Carnegie Mellon. And um, at the time, even when I joined, uh, people thought like, and, and I actually thought like, well, what is there left to do? Is there anything that we still have to fix? Um, because the videos already looked so good at the time. But of course, there was a lot of work left to do. And uh, I started as an individual contributor on the software side, um, soon saw that um, the camera hardware had to be improved. And there were really no great automotive high resolution cameras out at the time. And so we built the first camera system for uh, self-driving cars there that, that really had that high resolution. And from there on, I, um, I grew in, in that role and became the perception tech lead at some point at Waymo. And I worked with the team there to launch the different Firefly vehicles, the small cars that Waymo built. Uh, and eventually the, um, the vehicles in Arizona, where I got into the back of a car with no one in front uh, on public roads. And so that was super exciting. Uh, it also showed me at the time that working on this problem, really, uh, you had to get the safety case right to really launch uh, these vehicles. But also for transportation as a service, you had to get the comfort right for a, a rider. Uh, and that's really what eventually drew me towards tracking, because I think it's much more focused on the safety side and you don't need to uh, deal with the business implications of the rider comfort that much. You write about the rider comfort and the rider experience. I spent an afternoon at the Computer History Museum um, in Silicon Valley where the Firefly is on display. And you should see the the looks of smile and joy when these individuals go and see that. And you overhear some of these conversations. Well, I can go shopping. I can take a nap. I can read a book. It was a really great, and I don't think Google gets enough credit for it. It was a really great way to introduce the public to autonomy in a, in a fun, fun way, very similar to all the different Android things. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. So you, you start in self-driving cars, and now you're on self-driving trucks. And in the industry today, there's a giant debate. There's one part of the industry says, well, we can build a virtual driver, and he can drive an 18-wheeler and drive a vehicle in a dense urban environment, or he can even drive a shuttle. What are your thoughts on this whole debate about the virtual driver, one driver being able to drive in all conditions? Yeah, I believe if you would ask a, a truck driver, human truck driver out there uh, and say like, well, can anyone drive a truck who just has their regular license for passenger vehicles? Uh, they would say, no, it's very, very different. Uh, and I agree with that. I think driving a truck and, and driving some special vehicles, uh, it's just very different. And so at Kodiak, we're very focused on building that truck driver. 
And uh, I think there is some tools uh, in, in perception and in machine learning, like the entry tooling uh, around how you build software that is of course shared. And that is shared on our side as well. We, our tools could be used for different uh, applications. However, the truck driving itself is very special. So for instance, you have a very different field of view of the different things. Um, of the, uh, when you look back, um, you have a big trailer um, when you look forward, your blind spots are very different. Um, you have different, um, different weights that you carry. So there's a lot of different things that the trucks also in, in terms of their behavior um, on the road, uh, in terms of their use case, um, when they pick up loads, when they drop off loads, uh, as opposed to passengers, a lot of that is very special. And so building that truck driver is what we're focused on and um, what I think is, is quite a different thing than just building any generic driver. When you were there in the early days of Kodiak, did you sit down with professional CDL drivers or some of the most accomplished drivers in the world to say, okay, how do you drive this truck to kind of get a really good knowledge base from the individuals that are out there on the front lines every day driving on highways? Yes, absolutely. Um, we tried from the beginning when Kodiak was founded to hire a super experienced team. And that included engineers, but it especially also included uh, truck drivers. So we got some of the most experienced drivers um, in the country who had been driving manual loads, various different manual loads, right? Like different uh, dry vans uh, and flatbed um, trailers and uh, refrigerated trailers. and really got their experience of being out on the road for thousands of miles. Um, they also had uh, experience driving autonomous trucks from other startups at the time like Otto or Uber, um, really companies that, that now are more, more focused on, um, uh, on passenger vehicles. Uh, and so we were able to get that experience in and really use it um, from the beginning to plan out at Kodiak how we would build a product rather than just doing research on self-driving. What do they teach you about weight and braking? Because an 18-wheeler is a lot heavier than a passenger vehicle. Sometimes you can operate with without a trailer, just the cab. Do they go through those different driving scenarios since they have, the, uh, this, frankly, years and years and almost millions of miles of experience? They do. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see actually how the behavior changes if you have a trailer or if you go bobtail bobtail meaning there's just no trailer attached to the vehicle and that of course changes on the one hand it changes the length of the entire vehicle so if you would be in a merge situation or if you want to do a lane change that length of the vehicle really matters a lot uh, then of course it changes the weight so you would have different loads in the back and um, our software our kodiak driver is actually designed uh, very specifically for being able to deal with these weight changes. Uh, we take that into, con uh, into consideration in various parts of the system. For instance, on the controller side, I think there it's more ob most obvious that uh, if you brake, you need a different force if you have more weight. And so um, it, you need to apply a different pressure to your brakes if you have a different weight. And so um, the other things there is really when you go up a steep grade, when you uh, go around a turn, um, if your trailer is empty, it would be something that is more affected by wind, right? So there's a lot of factors where that weight and, uh, and the type of trailer really play in. Um, and it's really great to get that experience from our drivers uh, 
to create the right requirements from the beginning. When you're using trucks with different weights, trailer, no trailer, do you have to change the sensor sensor design, the sensor layout, and are there sensors on the trailer or are they just primarily on the cab? So our sensors are all mounted on the cab. Uh, they're of course forward-looking and backward-looking. So forward-looking, um, we need really high, uh, long-range sensors. Um, and that is, is a good mix across the vehicle. So we have LiDAR, um, of course, um, we have cameras um, and radar. And so all of those actually have their own properties. Uh, in our system, they're all what we call kind of first-class citizens. So uh, there is no one sensor that, that dominates um, the, the performance. Uh, they're all used kind of equally. And so it turns out that for longer ranges, cameras and radar actually are more dominant because uh, they just see further. And um, for things that are much closer to you, LiDAR really gives you that uh, increased kind of ability to see things that might not look like a vehicle or that might not look like an object that, um, that you're used to. Uh, and so all the sensors are really mounted um, on the cab, uh, in our case, mostly on our mirrors. Uh, we, have, we have worked really hard to create nice mirror pods that uh, contain all of these sensors. Uh, and so they're backwards looking, forwards looking, uh, but nothing on the trailer really. Uh, and there's a reason for that because on the trailer, um, you don't wanna mount things since you often don't own that trailer. That's something that your shipper gives to you. And um, so you want your hardware to be contained on the cab. I'm curious, why mount the sensors on the mirrors? Is there a distinct advantage for improving the safety or the, the way that the Kodiak driver drives? Yeah, so we have actually found that this, uh, these are very hardened mounting points. And um, it's great in this case. From the beginning, we started to do shock and vibe analysis. So we looked at what is actually um, affecting the sensor's performance. And if these, these sensors are not mounted properly, then you will get a lot of vibrations on them. Your quality will naturally degrade uh, just by the way of how you mounted it. And so we looked for very sturdy positions to put them on. Uh, and we found that uh, we can create really um, well-designed and, and uh, patented um, mirror pots that uh, we mount these sensors to. So I'm, I'm in the truck, just thinking outside as a traditional human driver driving a truck. Does the water from, if you're driving in the rain, does the water come up that high? Is that, why, is that another distinct advantage so you're not getting all that rainwater off the road? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is one thing where the, the spray, of course, um, does matter. Um, it's interestingly, when you think of like rain, we always think about the water coming down. Uh, but that is actually not as big of a problem as the water coming back up from the ground. Like you said, you, you, <laughs> you totally said that correctly. Like the spray is actually much more of a problem than um, the rain falling down. And so, um, of course, the height matters there, but also um, your sensor cleaning. And so we have looked into that. This is something that we're still developing um, and um, where we're, we're really kind of working on cleaning for all the different sensors. Um, but again, the non-optical sensors or non-lighter sensors in this case have big advantages, especially for the longer ranges. And that's why our system you will see has quite a, quite a bit of radar power on it uh, to see things further away and really tell um, 
their speed and uh, tell us if we should be braking or not. Because it, it, essentially, if you think of objects that are further away, what really matters to you is if they're going the same speed as you do or if they're, for instance, stopped. Because that's where you need to slow down uh, your track early enough. Uh, tracks, one of the, the, the properties of tracks is that they, you need to see much further because tracks cannot stop um, as quickly as a passenger car. And so that long range capability is really something that we're very focused on. Is the long range capability one of the key distinctive traits of the Kodiak driver that, that makes your tech successful because it's looking far down to predict something and somebody's going to cut you off? Or for instance, if there's a rock or there's, I don't know, a plane or something that lands on the highway, is that one of the key distinct advantages to the Kodiak driver? I would say the, that, that is maybe one of them, yes. Um, and there, maybe let me clarify that a bit. Um, you could say a camera sees a very long distance, right? Like uh, cameras theoretically see to the moon. But what really matters is like, what can you confidently perceive at a certain distance? And the same applies to LiDAR. If you're, for instance, in rainy conditions, like we said before, uh, a LiDAR that actually has a 200 meter range, that range might really be much shorter where you can confidently detect things in rain. And so it matters for these sensors what the confident range is. Um, and you have to, like a human driver, you have to adapt your speed to how far you can see. Um, and in that confident range, really radar gives you a very long distance, uh, even more so than, for instance, uh, um, a lighter that can also measure velocity because it's it's in the end uh, an optical system the lighter in this case and so the the radar is based on on radio waves and uh, it just has a different spectrum and speaking of long distances and engineering feats in december 2020 kodiak traveled 205 miles on a texas highway with no disengagements how did you achieve this this technical feat because I saw the video, your team was very kind to show me, where you're, you're changing lanes. And it just, it was, at least it was smooth sailing the whole way through. So I was like, okay, this is a big engineering feat. How were you able to achieve that? Yes, we were super happy about that achievement. And it's something that we have been working towards from the beginning. So let, let me maybe expand a bit on that. Um, from the beginning, we have looked into things that actually make tracking different. So for instance, um, on the mapping side, uh, the map, you, you would think that you go and map like a stretch, uh, like a Dallas to Houston route where we're mainly driving. Uh, you go and actually map that once and then it doesn't change for a long time. That's not true at all. There is a lot of construction going on. There's a lot of changes happening. Some of them even overnight where you don't really realize them. And so you need to have a really flexible system to go and uh, and detect these changes and and we call that perception over priors we actually perceive things on the road and compare it to our map but then we trust um, what we see on the road right we don't blindly trust our map and so we have developed our own mapping strategy there that uh, uh, that uses what we call sparse maps rather than high definition or HD maps, uh, and that allows us to update things very quickly. So that was one major enabling technology to actually get to this disengage free run, because there's so many changes that often we would just get a disengage from that uh, before we had that technology. Uh, another one really is that you react correctly to vehicles on the shoulder. 
Um, we encourage our drivers to really take over control of the vehicle when they feel uncomfortable. And uh, when you pass another vehicle that is stopped on the side of the road, uh, and you don't nudge for it, you don't slow down for it, then uh, drivers feel uncomfortable. And it turns out even one of the two, nudging or slowing, is not enough. You actually need to uh, create your distance to that vehicle and you need to slow down to make drivers feel comfortable. So all of this, the disengage free run that, that we had, and uh, in fact, we had several um, uh, already. They're not happening like every day, but they're happening very regularly. And we even had one day where we had a, uh, we had four legs uh, basically between Dallas to Houston, um, more than 800 miles in one day where we were completely disengaged free. And so, uh, yeah, we, we thought like that was quite an achievement. And it was something that was not a demo. It was not a stunt. It was something that because we created all the right features that we needed along the way, um, we got to that point. Um, and so even though we encourage our drivers uh, again to, to take over when they think they're uncomfortable, it just showed that they're so comfortable with it now that um, they basically just didn't have to take over. 800 miles disengagement free in one day. How? That's right. Is it just the, the Kodiak driver is, is, is maturing and becoming the old Kodiak driver, the seasoned CDL driver? Is that what's happening here? You're t you've programmed this thing <laughs> to magically go from 20 to 50 years experience overnight? Yeah, there's definitely a shift towards that. Um, we have a, a lot of things that we do towards that, of course. So um, we take all of our disengages that we see in the field um, and we take them into simulation. Uh, we go, we run simulations on all of them to really improve the system. Um, we take those, uh, we take our trucks out to the track and actually test it in a closed environment as well to make sure that our simulations are correct. Uh, and so we focused a lot in the last year on really getting that nominal driving up uh, to par uh, to what, what you said, like a, a long time driver would do. And so the next step for us this year, actually, and uh, in the future is to really go now that the nominal driving is really good to go and focus on these these critical edge cases where we see like, you know, they happen very rarely now, but they're actually very important to get right. So this is, in my opinion, how you launch a self-driving car uh, or in this case, a self-driving truck um, is you have to focus on the thing like being basically good across the spectrum. It's kind of like running uh, an iron or training for an iron man, right? Um, it's not enough if you can just go and be the fastest runner of every uh, of, um, of the pack. You actually have to also be able to swim and you have to uh, be able to uh, to uh, cycle very well. And if you're just good in one particular thing, in this case, nominal performance, nominal driving down the road, but you're not really good in taking over in the edge cases in in areas where, for instance, a vehicle next to you would encroach on your lane, something that, that you have no control over. Uh, you have to get really good at these things as well to launch a self-driving vehicle. Uh, and that is what currently our focus is. So interestingly, our performance of like being disengaged free might actually drop again 
uh, a bit because we encourage our drivers to take over um, and we then go in simulation and look at uh, was this something that the vehicle should have done differently or did we actually do a good job in the first place uh, and it just felt a little uncomfortable. You're doing a good job because you have a 100% on-time delivery record, which is impressive. You're going from 205 miles disengagement-free to 800 miles disengagement-free. You have an, inc an incredible safety record for the company as a whole, um, for what you're doing with the drivers and, and the company and testing everything in simulation and, and not being afraid to tell your drivers to take over. Who cares about disengagements? We're going to put safety first. So combining all this together, what's next? Uh, I think you, you touched on a, a lot of these um, components already. You, you mentioned also our, um, our deliveries, our on-time uh, deliveries, um, which I want to just very briefly highlight. This is something that, that maybe sounds like it's not that big of a feat, like to be 100% on time, like that happens all the time. That's not true at all in the freight industry. So. Uh, there is actually quite a shortage on drivers and there is also a lot of um, turnover with uh, human truck drivers. And so often these loads do not get delivered on time or not get delivered at all. And so over the, the 600 um, and more loads that we have done uh, since Kodiak was found that we maintained that 100% on time delivery record. And we're very proud of that because it means that our operations team is really running very smoothly. Uh, it means that our product team has worked with our shippers uh, very closely to make sure that uh, we can deliver um, what we're saying. And this is actually a big part of uh, a bit also of, of what's next, right, to answer your question. But uh, we, we want to work very closely with uh, shippers out in the field and and get more of that logistics experience and that's why we do these runs um, they're they're complementing our technical development our engineering um, in terms of actually giving us the product use case and making us learn more about how to operate a fleet how to operate the technology uh, so it's a very important component for us um, other than that, uh, I mentioned it briefly already, that um, we're, we're really focused on building out that safety case. And we go uh, do this on road in simulation and on the track, building out scenarios, looking at um, failovers of the hardware, what happens if some of the components do not work as they should, which always happens, right? Uh, eventually, uh, hardware components fail, and so you have to be safe even if those uh, uh, lasers, radars, cameras, compute stack actuators, if they don't work as they should. Um, and so we're very focused on testing that. Is that, is that. Were you saying that the system has redundancy in it? So as your drivers are going down the road, the Kodiak driver, the system has redundancy. So if a rock knocks out a LIDAR, for an example, the truck can still safely either pull over or operate? Yeah, absolutely. We have redundancy on various different levels, um, both on the sensor level and on the actuator level. So redundant steering, redundant braking, but also, like you said, uh, if, if there's a rock knocking out uh, a sensor, um, we can at least pull over. Uh, and I think that's very important. So even if you could drive uh, with your redundancy for hundreds of miles further, you would not have that same level of redundancy if 
another rock would hit that other sensor, right? However unlikely that would be. But in this case, we would want to be absolutely safe and pull over the truck um, and have someone either fix it um, directly or basically come and rescue that truck. It's, it's huge because you're not just prioritizing your culture of safety. You're prioritizing the motorists and the individuals that are, you know, maybe they're going to visit grandma or they're, you know, going to take a child to school and you're putting, you're putting them first. And I got to give you a lot of credit because you're not cutting corners like some other individuals that think it's funny to cut corners. I really appreciate as a father that you're taking all the, the due diligence steps to protect people. And I want to point out that to me, besides your culture of safety, your culture of engineering, to me being who I am, I think it's absolutely amazingly cool that you're generating revenue. You're not just sitting there testing, doing right by society, but you're generating revenue. Kodiak's not testing, generating revenue. How are you able to balance this incredible culture of safety, developing and engineering and testing a product, while at the same time generating revenue to, and to actually grow the business? Yeah, it's actually very useful for us to, to run these miles with human drivers uh, in, as safety drivers um, in the cab. And we create revenue, in this case, with our uh, development software, right? That is actually tested very well before in simulation. We have tested it outside of these deliveries, but then uh, the software reaches a state, like, and that happens every few weeks, we get a new software that we can run on these, uh, what we call production runs, where we do actual deliveries for uh, Fortune 500 companies. And uh, we have done more than 600 so far. Um, they're basically woven into our regular uh, operations. And um, it's, it's a really good way also, you, you were talking about the weight, different, having different weights. Um, it's a really good way of having different weights on the vehicle and actually seeing how that weight affects your performance. Because if you always drive the same route, but you always change your parameters a little, uh, this is a great discovery process also for what actually matters um, on the fleet. How did we cover all of the different things that we have to in simulation? Did we find all of the different things or are there surprises that happen to us on the road? And it's very important to us that these surprises are always just kind of product related and never safety related. Um, you were talking about the safety culture just before, um, and uh, it is essential to us that a driver can always uh, disengage with multiple methods uh, and that our drivers are super experienced. We talked about that before as well. Um, and that anyone in the entire company can really bring up uh, safety concerns and kind of um, stop us from, from running the fleet. How is it running through, I'm just thinking, like a construction zone, especially in, say, Southern California or Nevada, where you have some of those windy highways, and on one side you got a, you got a big, oh, God, multi-thousand-foot fall, and then you got a train, and then all suddenly, if you're going like the Cajon Pass, for example, and you've got a construction zone. Can your trucks operate autonomously through a construction zone, or do one of your seasoned drivers have to, to take over? They operate uh, autonomously through a construction zone, yes. And um, it's one of the things that, of course, still needs development uh, even further because construction zones are changing very rapidly, right? So as you can see in these videos uh, that we have put online, uh, 
we actually go through quite a lot of construction zones. On our Dallas to Houston stretch, there is basically always construction going on somewhere. Sometimes um, prolonged over several months, sometimes just overnight. Uh, we actually saw once uh, in a night run that they had just opened up the, the highway right next to us and there was just one lane that was open and there was this big hole uh, in all of the other lanes. And there was a construction worker uh, at the moment where we were passing, that construction worker stepped out into our lane to go around that hole. And so that was, of course, a, a situation where our safety drivers would take over, uh, even though we can usually drive through construction zones, but they would take over because it's much more important for us to be safe in that situation than kind of to collect data from the truck being autonomous. Uh, and then we go and take that into simulation, we run it through, we make sure we're absolutely safe. But that's how we develop um, these construction features further and uh, the more structured of course uh, a construction zone can be built the easier it is for automated vehicles and it's something that you learn about how they do it and and how maybe some of the variations are you learn that over time um, and uh, it, it's something that just needs uh, even more testing of course as an engineer what was your first thing going through your mind when you said, okay, I'm going to figure out how to operate in a construction zone autonomously where you're going into simulation? How are like your engineering mind trying to solve that problem? Yeah, you first go and, and look at how a construction zone is generally built. And uh, you can, of course, identify a lot of the components in a construction zone, uh, the lane shifts in there, the, the different features that construction has. Sometimes there's blocked lanes, there's cones, um, there is like K-rails, the, the concrete um, bars that, that are used to block off certain lanes. Uh, and then you can think about different variations. Uh, and really, I, I come back to that, uh, that kind of pattern of you need to handle not only the one case, not, not only the, oh, this is one particularly hard case, uh, but like a lot of variations of it. And so uh, I think you don't need to be perfect in a construction zone. Uh, if you go a little slower uh, than what the speed limit says there, as long as it's not super slow, that's totally fine, right? You can handle that construction zone. And it's, it's something that the trucks do in general, right? The trucks um, drive on the right side and they're a bit slower. So people are used to that. And so even in a construction zone, we can figure out how to go through that the first time. And then we can actually use our mapping technology and, and really use that to our advantage um, of telling the rest of the fleet what we have just observed in that construction zone. And we have that functionality actually running on our fleet. So the fleet is learning from what any one truck is seeing. Um, it sees that construction zone the first time. It is very careful about it because it might have changed, right? It's a change to what it has in its map. But then it takes that information, it uh, sends it to the rest of the fleet, and all of the other trucks can actually learn from that um, in an instance. So in an instance, let's say, truck A is going through a construction zone and say truck B and C are 100, 200 miles behind. Are they getting that, that update in real time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it takes a couple of minutes at the moment, uh, but it is uh, very fast. Wow. So you've solved that engineering problem or you're working towards solving, but what are some of the larger uh, engineering problems that you're still trying to, to solve to build the Kodiak driver? Yeah, I would say the, the largest problems are around building the safety case um, and really the reliability of all of the, the hardware components. 
So what is really important for your safety case is that your your hardware works well. And that's why you build in redundancy, of course. But even there, like I said before, if you lose your redundancy, you, you pull over your track. So you want all of the different components to work really well. And that's where we work with um, our partners and can really leverage the ecosystem that maybe did not exist uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, we can work with these partners to build super reliable hardware to uh, integrate it very well. Then we go from there and actually do our, our track tests to demonstrate the redundancy. And um, we build up that safety case. And what, what, what does that mean? Safety cases are, are known, I think, uh, in the industry, but for people who are maybe not experts uh, there yet, it's something that is very well known in the, the aerospace uh, world where you go and, and you collect data, you collect certain scenarios and you do a risk analysis. Anytime you're on the road, it, there is some risk associated with that. Uh, and any decision you make, you could swerve for like a vehicle on your left and actually swerve into a vehicle on your right. So you have to perceive all of those and, and figure out what is the risk of doing uh, any decision that I do. And we're in that process of going through the different cases and figuring out how do we minimize the risk overall, uh, which, which again kind of goes down to any one of the long poles kind of needs to, needs to be shrunk. So whenever something happens either very frequently or it is a very severe outcome, then those are the ones to really focus on. And so that's kind of to close the loop to what I said maybe in the beginning is uh, that's where really the safety matters for uh, autonomous tracking and not so much the comfort. Whereas for uh, an autonomous taxi service, the comfort, the rider comfort is essential as well. And that's why launching an autonomous track is considered to be a bit easier in that in that way. Not really on the engineering side, but it, it's it's something that where you can focus much more. That's incredible. I'm happy you brought up aerospace because I like to put this all into perspective and let our listeners know. You started as a PhD candidate working on autonomous navigation for quadcopters. You went from quadcopters to self-driving cars to autonomous trucks. Did you ever imagine this career career path? Because you, you've mentioned all these incredible things through, throughout this conversation and, and knowing your background, I'm like, okay, this must have came from here and this must have came from here. Did you ever imagine that? Because I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I did not imagine that it would go exactly like this. Um, but like, like I said, um, the, when I joined Google at the time in the very beginning, it kind of felt like a lot of these things are solved already. Uh, and they were not. And so I, I really jumped into the opportunities that I saw there. And every time you do that, there's people who are really supportive. Um, and I'm really glad that, that I met so many people along the way who were uh, great mentors and, and very inspiring. Uh, there's also always people who tell you, no, you're never going to achieve that. Uh, and that starts from uh, doing your PhD uh, and, and even earlier where they say, no, that path that, that you're envisioning, that, that is really kind of a, a very steep one and um, it's hard to achieve, you're never going to do that. And so um, maybe my, my advice for, for young engineers in the field there uh, is to really just follow your path and, and to go and try uh, and, and hit your goals. And uh, I think in most of the cases, you will be successful.
and you, in my humble opinion, you've you've hit your goals. And as we look to wrap up this extremely insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them about Kodiak? Yeah, we're out there um, operating our tracks um, between Dallas and Houston. We're driving loads uh, every day for Fortune 500 customers. We're, we're driving a lot of this disengage free already. Disengage is as such is not the metric that we're optimizing overall. We're really focusing on launching a driverless service and really reduce, basically meeting that bar of a human driver as performance. For that, to, to hit that goal, we're using both our experienced engineering team, but also our experienced truck drivers who give us advice on that. And so that, that I think summarizes what we're trying to achieve. And we're, of course, hiring. We're working with partners out there in the industry in terms of shipping, in terms of sensors, in terms of actuators. So if you're interested, talk to us and uh, I'd be very happy to, to speak with you. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, how, how may they get a hold of you? Our webpage is Kodiak.ai, and uh, we have a, a very nice contact form there where we will get back to you. And also, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And as we've heard during this conversation, it's been extremely insightful, but Kodiak's engineering the future. And Andreas, I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Grayson. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Jack Wiest of the Intel Corporation to learn about Mobilized Responsibility Sensitivity Safety, RSS, and how we can ensure one incident does not destroy an entire industry. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. 